had the song leaders give that to Charles so I wouldn't forget to do it when I got up here, and then I nearly forgot to load my PowerPoint on the computer. So I'm a firm believer in trying to get as many things off your mind as you can before you speak, but I guess even good intentions sometimes get kind of fouled up a little bit. I want to thank you for being here this morning. If you're listening on Zoom, thank you for being here. We have a number of visitors with us, and we're especially glad that you're here. We hope that you'll find the things interesting this morning. We hope that you'll find them applicable, and most importantly, that you'll find them from the Word of God. Of all the things that we do when we teach, we want to teach the Bible. Uh, we don't want to teach tradition. We don't want to teach what we necessarily think, although I guess there's always some of that wrapped up into a speaker's words that they use. But we always want to go back to the Bible because the source of truth, as we've talked about lots of times, is not in me, it's not in a group of elders, it's not an evangelist or a preacher, it's in the Bible. And so with that in mind, we want to talk about edifying one another. And I must say when Jared used this scripture Wednesday night, I went, uh-oh, here goes six weeks of work uh, out the window. But it did not do that to me, so thanks, Jared, for the, the, the turn you took. Romans 14, verse 19 says this, Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says it this way, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. 1 Corinthians 11, now in these things, in giving these instructions, I don't praise you since you come not together for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in part, I believe it. Edifying means to build each other up. Edifying means to instruct and to teach. Our goal is to know more about our source of truth, the Bible, to know more about God and about Jesus, about the things he wants us to do, the things, the way he wants us to live our life. And we're going to particularly talk this morning about edifying one another in the assembly. There's a lot of ways that we edify one another in the assembly, out of the assembly, in our homes, in the community. This morning, particularly, we're going to talk about our practice, if you want to call it that, of having multiple men speak to the congregation, multiple teachers in a congregational setting, and where we get our, our practice of doing that. What we find out is that there are times, and we've all been to places where edifying wasn't done, and although it's particularly talking about the Lord's Supper in the passage that we just read, that the assembly's not for the better of people, it's for the worse. Now, we're fortunate that doesn't happen much around here that I've, that I've been able to notice in the last 20 years or maybe even the last 50 that I've, I remember things. But we've all been to places where that happens when you come together and it's not beneficial to everybody. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. There's a lot of ways, and that should be method, not methos, whatever that word is. Ephesians 4 and 11, there's a lot of roles and methods for edifying one another. Ephesians 4, 11, it says, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Different roles can be used to edify or to build up. And we see some of that at work as, as you think about the ways and the things that, that we practice here. This morning, we're going to focus on teaching in the assembly. Here's kind of the driving force behind why I think this is an important topic. It's important that we don't just follow practices, even scriptural ones, blindly. The idea of doing it just because we've always done it is not a good reason in and of itself. If you're 80 years old or 90 years old, that may be enough for you. You may be so ingrained that you don't ever question that. But what happens when we do things just because that's the way we do them and we never learn why we do them and we never get to a point we can explain why we do them, and I mean that for every single person here, 
It makes us susceptible to some of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later. We're susceptible to false things being taught and false practices being adopted. So it's important not to follow things blindly. And I'll even say this, tradition is okay, but doing things just because it's tradition isn't a good reason to do things. And here's what I mean by that. You'll hear in a lot of religious discussions now, they'll say, in the Baptist tradition, or you'll read it even in Church of Christ publications, in the Church of Christ tradition, kind of as a way to soft sell that people do different things different ways. And, and what I want to get across is that tradition's not a good reason to do something. Our basis for what we practice and what we believe needs to go back to the Bible. It's not about this group of people or what we decide. It's not about the elders or what we decide to do on these scriptural types of things. It's about doing what the Bible asks us to do. Now, if tradition follows that, that's okay, but I think we've all been reminded how strong tradition is in the last year. As we've changed up some very simple things in the way we worship, and, and I'll even I'll call myself out, not anybody else, after we, the way we close the service now with a closing prayer and a song after that, that's backwards from how I did it for 54 and a half years probably. And we, get, we say amen at the end of that prayer, and guess what I do? Like I've done for the last 35, I reach over to hug my wife and walk out in the aisle half the time still, and that's been a year. That's a simple example about tradition, but tradition is strong, and we have to make sure that for things that are doctrine, things that are important, not just the order that we do the service in, things that are really important that we go back to the source of truth, the Bible. Understanding biblical practice is important for everybody here. The way I've thought at lots of times in my life, well, I can't explain that or really understand that the elders can do that. Oh, let's get an evangelist to come in so he can explain to us what we really believe. And you, you kind of see the thought process. And that happens all around in lots of different ways. The way that we practice isn't something like that. Every single person here, the Bible's straightforward enough that every single one of us at some level from the youngest to the oldest can understand these things and needs to understand these things. It's part of the checks and balances that the Bible builds into making sure that the church propagates, that as time goes on, it doesn't drift away from the truth. And understanding important, is important. And I always want to give everybody some personal responsibility in everything that we do. Every one of us here needs to be able to understand and explain biblical practice, why we do what we do. It's not something we can just delegate to somebody else who's smarter than us or somebody that's more experienced than us or somebody that holds an office that we don't hold. It's important that every one of us be able to understand these things, not just what we talk about today, but basic principles like baptism. It's not enough to say, oh, they're studying with the lost or this or that. We've all got to be able to do that and understand it because when we can understand it, that's great. When we can explain it and teach it to other people, that gives us even a more deep understanding and it gives us an ownership of the things that we say we believe. And when we can do that in a good way, it helps others and it helps us be a lot stronger. Here's the real danger of not talking about these things. Oh, that would never happen here. That'd never happen in Plainview. Never would happen. And maybe in our lifetime it hasn't or we haven't seen it. I want to remind you of some of the things we've studied in the past year about history. And I'm not going to go into a lot of history. But put yourself in A.D. 50 in Rome. Jesus died 20 years ago. The Apostle Paul, Peter are still alive. You've got apostles, people that worked directly with Jesus teaching you. Do you think they ever said, oh, we could never slip from the truth here. We've got the apostles. They've been teaching us. Some of them alive knew Jesus and saw him in person, most likely. 
Peter was an elder there. How could you go wrong? They were probably the most influential church in what the known brotherhood was at that time. But guess what? In a, within a hundred years, they were baptizing ways that the Bible doesn't instruct to baptize. Within 150 years, they had a universal elder or bishop, the precursor to the Pope. What I'm wanting us to think about and to own is that if we don't all do our part, little or big, and it starts with knowing and understanding and being able to know it well enough to explain it, it's very easy for things to slip over a period of time. May not happen today, may not happen tomorrow, but it's incumbent on all of us that we do our part, that we teach our children, that we teach the people that we have influence with. None of us may teach thousands of people. We not, may not be Peter and preach to thousands, but we all have influence and we all need to fill our responsibility because it is a real danger. Maybe not tomorrow, but history's shown us over and over that if people don't take the responsibility seriously, it becomes a problem that's very difficult to change. There's a reason why we have the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I don't foresee an immediate problem, but it's a whole lot easier to prevent it than it is to try and fix it after it's broken. You can think of countless physical and spiritual examples of that. And so that's our goal this morning. Let's talk about a few of these things. Let's give you scriptural background for it. And let's make sure we understand and know why we do things. We don't just do it because that's what we do. And, and I generally make this disclaimer. There's a lot of people here visiting today that don't do things in service like we do. If you've grown up here all your life, you think, well, that's just the way things are done. The way we worship here, the order of our service, having multiple teachers is way different than the rest of the world. It's way different than 95% of the churches of Christ in the world. And so I, I sincerely mean this. If you're visiting and you've got questions, or if you, even if you attend here and have questions, I sincerely beg of you, if you've got questions, ask them. You'll, you'll get a good discussion. Things won't be personal. It won't be defensive. What my goal is for us to all have biblical principle, because when we follow biblical principle, the church is unified, the church is strengthened, and we ensure that that happens not just today and this week and this month, but that it's the next generation and the next generation and as many generations as survive until the Lord comes back. So let's start in Acts chapter 13 where we see the examples of the church. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And really what I want us to notice out of this is that there were multiple teachers at the church in Antioch. You'll find that principle throughout the Bible. When the Bible talks about elders, you don't read about one elder governing a church. There's, there's a certain safety and checks and balances in a plurality. When one person gets in charge or one person does all of the teaching, pretty soon you get one person's view of the world. And no matter how they may try to be objective and unbiased, every single one of us brings to the pulpit, brings to the way that we lead our own subjective nature of things that we've experienced, our own biases because of our family or our race or our income, all these different things. Now, is that the reason God chose that? I don't know, but he did say there needs to be multiple for a lot of good reasons. So that's what we noticed. Multiple teachers are named there. We're going to read several scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 as we go. Again, just to reiterate the point, reiterate the point God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The point is there's a lot of ways to build up the church. But again, teachers and all these are used in plural. There's more than one. 
Hebrews 5 verse 12 as we talk about teaching and think about the idea that all of us are teachers. It's not enough. And here's our tendency when there's one guy, one person, one even one group of people that all of a sudden that's there, they're the teacher. Our tendency is to sit back and think, I'm not a teacher. I'm not good at it. I'm not experienced at it. All the different things we can think of. Here's what Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 12. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have milk, have need of milk and not of strong meat. And not necessarily in a public sense, but all of us need to mature and be a teacher, even if it's not in a public sense. We're going to talk about some of the, the guidelines and restrictions on public teaching, but all of us are given a responsibility to understand and to be a teacher. And we teach lots of people. Mothers are the, are the primary influence in the home. Fathers have a great responsibility, but sometimes a lot of it's just time. And when you're staying home with your child, you're a teacher. You're providing teaching that can never be replaced, that there's no substitute for. When you're busy with your friends, you're a teacher. And we all need to do that. And it goes back to the point we've all got to be able to understand and explain in a reasonable way what we believe and what you believe. He gives us a warning in James chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. It's not a contradiction to we all need to be teachers in Hebrews. But here I think he's particularly talking about public teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You know, there was a time in my life where everybody that was a male that had been baptized that was over a certain age was expected to be a teacher. My dad was an oddity among that in, when I was growing up. I remember him giving one or two lessons in my lifetime. Wasn't his cup of tea. Was he a teacher? Sure. I think if you ask either of my sons particularly, Jacob in particular over the last several years, he taught him a lot about life and about the church and about a lot of different things without ever sitting in a pulpit, at least not in Jacob's life and not in the last 40 years probably. And there's a lot of people in that situation. You don't have to be a pulpit teacher to be a teacher. But in this particular instance, he's talking about be careful when you are. When you're a public teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard. Nobody likes a hypocrite, even a perceived hypocritical nature. And when you do that, really as a teacher, as an elder, I, I, I go out to the jail a lot, and the example I always use is nobody holds a gun to your head and makes you do anything. As a teacher, I really don't have a tool to make you do anything, to make you learn, to try to get you to apply it. I don't have anything to make you do anything. Really what I have and what any teacher has is influence. I have the Bible, and I want to influence you to do what the Bible says. But when I'm hypocritical, why I'm, teachers are held to a higher standard, it's not so I use better words, not so that I have a better vocabulary or a better layout or fancier PowerPoint slides it's so that i can have more influence teachers are held to a higher standard so be careful what you wish for it's <laughs> kind of what james is saying and and i'll tell you this think about the school teacher now let me go back to an english teacher we all have one that we can probably remember what happens when the english teacher uses bad grammar in a sentence to you well I, we all said oh i caught her and we tried to correct them right that was what, what we did when we were kids but what does that do to a student when their teacher uses bad grammar? Well, it automatically, automatically makes us doubt things about them. And, and that's kind of the, the application and principle to not being, not many people need to be teachers or to make sure that we're not hypocritical in the way that we live when we teach. Because if I'm the English teacher using bad grammar, people go automatically, why would I listen to grammar lessons from someone who doesn't even use good grammar? So teachers are held to a higher standard doesn't it mean it's not a great thing to aspire to a lot of people desire to be teachers and we're given warnings about that first timothy one says desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm there's a lot of people that want to be teachers 
It takes a level of desire to be a teacher, but it also takes work and maturity, and we've always got to examine our motives for being a teacher. And elders have been put in a position of leadership to try and make sure that that all happens. But all of us are teachers, whether we're public teachers or not. When you ask someone who's never had a multiple, a setup where we have multiple teachers like we do here, like most of us, many of us have grown up with, it strikes fear in the heart of people to think that in the last five years, about 50 some different people have stood up here on a Sunday morning and given a lesson. For people that are in charge, but 50 people on the floor and have no idea what they're going to say, that strikes terror in their hearts. You couldn't imagine as a principal putting a teacher up to speak to a group of parents without knowing what they were going to say. The danger that people have is they're going to say something wrong. And the Bible warns us that the danger of false teaching is right. Not making a mistake, not misspeaking, not being at a spot where you're still maturing and learning, but... It says in 2 Timothy 4, there will be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Remember we talked about the responsibility of every single one of us understanding what biblical principle is and understanding it to a point that we can explain it? Guess who? We, we all do it. We complain about the person that got elected president. if we don't like them, and we blame them for all the bad stuff they do. Guess who elected the president? People. The people. And that's the phenomenon that he's explaining here is guess who allowed false teaching to happen? He didn't really call out at this point. He does in other places. The elders doesn't call out the teacher themselves. He calls out the people because they don't endure sound doctrine. And the check and balance we have is that everyone has a responsibility to know what it says and to make sure that people aren't getting brought in to teach bad things, things that aren't true, things that are, as it describes here, that, that scratch our itching ears that sound good to us. What our responsibility as a congregation is to make sure that biblical teaching is taught, things that are true. Second Peter 2 <clears throat> It says, there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. It's not a matter of if, it's when. False teachers will be among us who secretly bring in destructive things, destructive heresies, things that cause division, even denying the Lord who brought them or who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So false teaching is real. I'm like you. I like to live in a world where bad stuff doesn't happen. <laughs> until it just hits me in the face and you have to deal with it. And some people like to live in a world where they don't, it can hit them in the face and it still isn't really happening. And we can't do that with false teachers. I'm not saying that we ought to be suspicious of every person that we ever, but we have responsibilities to, to try what's being said. Not to see if they did a good job presenting it and had pretty slides, but is, is it true according to the Bible? Are they slipping in things that don't belong, things that aren't true? And all of us have a responsibility for that because if we think that we're going to avoid that, what makes us think we will avoid it if Peter, he's alive when he's writing this. He's saying there's, there's false teachers right now when he was writing and there'll be false teachers in the future. It's going to happen. It's true. Now, when things are dealt with small early and you keep a good environment going, oh, it's a whole lot easier. An ounce of prevention is way better than trying to put, the, put the, all the troubles to, to rest if they start. But again, that boils down to us all having fulfilled our responsibilities. That influence is very real. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 27 is where we're going to read a few verses and I encourage you to read all of 1 Corinthians 14. It talks about the carrying on and the order that's needed in worship services. And he's going to talk about some of those different things. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn and let one interpret. So someone speaking in a foreign language, 
That doesn't do anybody any good unless someone explains and interprets what he says. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the churches and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Listen to what they say and make sure it's true. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Teaching ought to be understandable in a way that everyone from the youngest to the oldest can understand something. Now, is a three-year-old going to understand what a 30-year-old understands? And is a 30-year-old going to understand what a 50-year-old understands? No. Maybe a three-year-old is going to understand how to sit still and pay attention. Maybe they're going to learn very basic things. But guess what? If you're 30 and can't still, you didn't learn how to sit still and pay attention, you're not going to learn what you need at that age. So it's not about doing things that are impossible or doing unrealistic things. It's about teaching at whatever level and learning at whatever level we are. And all of us taking care of our responsibility seriously uh, to make it all fall into place. As it said in the previous reading, teachers can and must be in control of their emotions. And I'm not saying all of us that teach need to be a monotone, never show your feelings. I think some of the most powerful lessons I've heard, people showed their emotions because it, it, it really mattered to them. And what he's talking about in that, that passage is there, there's a large group of people then, obviously, and now that think things just come into their head, moved by the Spirit, and they just say things. Whatever pops into their head. It may sound really good. It may sound crazy. It may be completely off base, but it's what the Spirit revealed to them. And what he's making sure we understand is that is not true. That's not the person that needs to be speaking. And it seems crazy, but if any of you have ever visited some of those places... You go, what in the world is going on? How could that happen? The Bible says it shouldn't in a public setting because teachers must be in control. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I can control what I say. I've got to be able to control what I say if I'm going to be in front of a congregation. Should be understandable even by a first-time visitor or an unbeliever is what he said. If we don't do it that way, here's the consequence. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, everybody's speaking in their own language, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of, my, out of your mind? That's what I thought when I went to a place. We bowed our heads to pray, and I hear about 50 people saying all these different things. They were speaking English, <laughs> but it was still out of control and people were just saying what popped into their head I thought they were out of their mind now I had been warned that's what was going to happen so I didn't fall out of the chair but you understand what the Bible is trying to make sure happens is that we understand it's not just some random practice that we picked up to stay in order it's because that's what helps us build each other up and that's what helps us teach those that are uninformed or those that are unbelievers that's why we do those sorts of things. Confusion is the exact opposite. It does not equal edifying. Confusion is the opposite of building up. Confusion at least leaves questions and most likely does worse things. It tears down the opposite of building up. And so when confusing things happens, it's worse than, than doing nothing at all. 1 Corinthians 14, as we continue on down, there's some other instructions about teaching. And again, we're not common among the world. We're not common among denominations. And in growing number, we're not common with many churches of Christ. And the idea that women, their role is not to teach publicly. Paul says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful to women to speak in church. 
No, this doesn't mean women can't teach at home or in somebody else's home. But the role has been given that the men teach. Over history, you can see, and I've watched it, churches, denominations where there is not one man at the church anymore. And we've seen it in Church, church of Christ where there's four little widow ladies left. And part of that's because the men didn't take their responsibility seriously. Or the women thought that, oh, it'll just take care of itself. And they married people that wouldn't do things that the Bible asks us to do. And they get in a pickle. You know, this is right after Paul says, don't do things in a confusing way. There's an order to things. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And it's not our tradition. It's not an optional thing that we decided to do sometime 50 years ago. Our attempt here, as it always is, is to try and restore, and we'll use that word again, New Testament Christianity. You've heard that over and over in many different lessons. Our goal is not to do things like we've always done them. Our goal is not to always do things like everybody else. Our goal is to do things like the Bible says. And when we veer off of that, if our intentions are good, if our intentions are, you know, maybe evil intent, whatever the intentions are, it really doesn't matter, then we're going to have bad consequences. The biblical command is for men to fill the role of, of teaching. And Paul addresses, you know, there's a lot, I've heard it said a lot of different ways. Oh, Paul was a woman hater. Oh, things were different back then. Oh, silent doesn't really mean silent. All these different things that discount what the Bible says. Here's how Paul addressed that, because I'm guessing people thought the same thing when he said it. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? So he's saying, Corinthians, did you make this up? Or were we the only ones that taught it to you only? And here's what he said. If anyone thinks him to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. You know, Paul didn't do that very often. He wrote things about how to be baptized. He wrote commands to the Galatians and the Ephesians and all the different letters. He didn't pull out the card that says, remember what I'm writing to you is the commandments of God. He did in this case. He says, remember, I'm not just making this up for you. I'm writing these as the commandments of God, the commandments of the Lord. And we're going to talk about a few things coming up. How does that happen? That well-intentioned, educated people say the Bible doesn't mean what it says. I read it in English, but it doesn't really mean that. Let me tell you what it really means. That's a real danger. And again, why it's so important that every single one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, make sure we understand. It's not just because mom and daddy did it. It's not just because that's what I grew up doing. Make sure we understand the biblical principles that go to it. And these aren't hard principles. And that, that's one of my goals when I teach is I want it to seem like when you read it, man, that's so simple. <laughs> There's nothing complicated about it. Well, guess why? Fishermen, tent makers, they were writing the Bible. They were teaching the Bible. It wasn't scholars. It wasn't doctors of divinity. It wasn't people with PhDs. It was average common people that had average common understanding that we're teaching the Bible when we're reading in the book of Acts and we're looking at who wrote a lot of the letters. We all need to be sure that we can do that so that we're not swayed, so that it's not on us that false teaching is allowed to happen. Because there are a lot of, and I put it in quotes, a lot of smart people that say this doesn't mean what it says. And not only this, but a lot of other things. Oh, it really doesn't mean that. And look at all the degrees behind my name. And some of you know and some of you don't know. I've got lots of degrees behind my name. <laughs> I've got three degrees behind my name and 240 college hours and nearly another degree behind my name. But guess what that means when it comes to understanding and knowing the Word of God? Very little. If I do what I think and not what the Bible says, or I try to spin up some new idea that says, oh, this really means this, not that, Oh, all the stuff that you've been taught and read for years and years and years. Oh, don't you know that doesn't apply anymore? They're not good for that. 
but yet we somehow give credence to people with lots of degrees behind their name. And that's not a good reason. And here's what he says right down the line in 1 Corinthians 14. If any, and he's talking about these commands and how to conduct the worship service. In verse 38, if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Guess what? Some people aren't going to get it. And that's okay. But he tells us what to do with it. He doesn't say, if someone doesn't acknowledge this command to convince him, call him stupid or label him the Antichrist. That's happened to me personally. Oh, you can't see this? Well, you must be XYZ. Or to get very defensive, have bad thoughts about people. What it says is, you know, ignorant doesn't, you don't have to do much, much thinking. It means ignore. Being, let them be ignorant basically means ignore them. Now, there's other commands that they're in the assembly or in the, in the congregation stirring up discord and, and division. But we don't have to go convince people that are doing the wrong thing that they're doing the wrong thing. In many cases, when people see the right thing happening, and I think there's people here that would attest to that this morning. When they see the right kind of teaching happening, they go, oh, that makes sense. Many times I found myself caught up in defending and lamb blasting people that didn't do things like I thought the Bible said they ought to do them. And, and that's really not where we need to spend our energy. There's a lot of energy that needs to be spent teaching the gospel and building up people. We don't have to waste our energy going out and debating and arguing and fussing and fighting with people that don't do it this way. We talked a little bit about it, but how does it happen? How did the church at Rome have the apostle Peter as an elder? Probably many of them firsthand knew Jesus Christ, heard him teach in person. How do they let it slip? I think it's important. If we talked about our history, and this is a slide out of in the, the outline when we talked about the history of the church many months ago. Remember, the reason we look at history is so we don't do the same bad things and we copy the good things. So how did it happen that they started fussing and fighting and departing from the truth within a hundred years from the time Christ died? You know, that's a, a relatively short amount of time. This congregation's been in existence in Plainview for about 60 or 70. You know, we're not far off from 100 years. Multiple generations have passed down, and every generation, it's been very, very important. Not to keep up the traditions that were passed down, but to make sure the Bible is, is applied and taught and used to make sure that's the way we worship and that's the things we teach. You notice that was in 100, 200, 300 relatively short amount of time the restoration that we talked about that took 1500 years it's back to that ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it takes a long time to fix things that are broken departure happens quickly restoration is slow so we want to make sure that the departure doesn't happen and prevention is the key can't say that enough times the prevention is the key and that means that each and every one of us has to read the bible each and every one of us has to understand it well enough to explain it to our children. Not the elder's job to teach our children. Can they help? Sure. It's not the grandparents' job to teach the children. Can they help? Sure. Can they be a great influence? Sure. Can they teach the children? Sure. But parents have a responsibility. It's, you know, we, we want to pass off and say, oh, I can't or it's not my job. All of us have an influence with somebody. And when we, when we approach it that way, it helps ward this off. It helps prevention be what it needs to be. How does it happen? The average Christian doesn't know the Scriptures and doesn't stand up for the Scriptures. And I'm not lumping everybody here together. I, I like to think that we're not necessarily that way. But if you look across the, the world at people that call themselves Christians, the average one, the average person that calls himself a Christian can't explain any of the stuff that we've talked about this morning, much less things that might be more complicated than that. It's not somebody else's job. It's my job as an individual, each of our jobs as an individual, to know and stand up, not to fight, but to be fully convinced in our own mind and not be swayed by false doctrine. How did it happen? 
How does it happen? Placing too much importance and giving way too much influence to the educated people. The people that are the smart people or the hierarchy. Oh, they must know because they're in this position. Oh, they must know because they've got some degrees behind their name. And again, I'm not knocking degrees and I'm not, not knocking people who are in leadership. What I'm doing is making, making sure everybody understands that the Bible has checks and balances and we've all got our place to fill in that. How does it happen? A little at a time. How does anything happen? That's, that pretty much describes all sorts of religious error. A little at a time because people weren't paying attention. Because they were delegating their job to somebody else and saying they should do it. It's not my job. And I don't, I don't do this often. And again, there's a lot of people with connections to some of these places we're going to name. I'm not doing it to embarrass you or embarrass anybody else. What, I, what my point is in showing some of these things we're going to bring up, and I think we'll close in about 10 minutes, is to show that it's way closer than we think. Oh, all that liberal stuff, here's what we like to say. Oh, that's in New York. That's the liberals, right? Oh, no, go to California. That's where the real liberals live, and we like to lump all this stuff together. But the folks that are trying to change what the Bible says in plain, simple English many times are a lot closer than that. And I'm not labeling them as evil or the Antichrist or any of those things we talked about. I just want you to see how close it is to home so that each of us understands the urgency and the importance of not just doing the status quo, but to knowing and understanding and taking responsibility for knowing the Bible and making sure the truth gets taught because it's not the preacher's job. It's not the elder's job alone. It's all of our jobs. And we've talked about the internet a lot of ways. There's a lot of good things. The internet is not the center of all evil. It's got a lot of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff. But there are literally thousands of, I'll label it little, little c, thousands of Church of Christ websites and writers. Anybody in the world can open up a website for very little money, can publish whatever they want to publish. But there's thousands of those that say they're Church of Christ people. I'm going to use a particular example, but a lot of them are educated and very persuasive writers. Unfortunately, on the Internet, as we've talked about in lots of ways, people can say and do whatever they want on the Internet, and there's no checks or balances built in. And I think that's a particular There's a reason why the church was set up like it is, so there's checks and balances, so that false things don't get taught without being corrected. At a, at a little level before it's a big deal. I picked out one. Has a great name, right? Authentic Theology. Who could argue with that? That's a website. It's authentic. <laughs> Isn't that what we all want? Don't know this man. Just one I picked up out of the blue. But here's the type of things that I found there. He's a Church of Christ, former deacon. He's a lawyer. And now he's full-time writes this website on all sorts of topics. I don't necessarily even encourage you to go there and read them. <laughs> I just want you to know it's real. It's not something I made up. It's not something that nobody can get their hands on. Any one of you could be reading at any given time this or thousands of others like it. And this was straight off his website, the research that he did. Out of the seven, or seven out of the 12 national and regional colleges affiliated with the Church of Christ, no longer exclude women from actively serving in their chapel worship services when the assembly includes men and women. You go, eh, who is that? And what does that mean? I mean, these are the people that are educated, that are influencing our young people, that have a lot of influence on many, many churches of Christ. They don't teach a very simple, basic principle that women aren't given the role of being public teachers. And again, some of you have connection with these. It's not, not to do you any harm. And I really encourage you to, to visit with me if you've got questions. There's no malice in any of this. It's a genuine desire to promote biblical teaching, not just here, but wherever we all have influence. Because when we go back to the Bible, if we want the, 
if we want the promises of the Bible, and I think we all do, nobody comes to church so they can go to hell. I mean, we all go to church because we want to get to heaven. We want the promises, the good promises that God has promised. But it's always baffled me how we want the promises that are given, but all the stuff in between, we want to just make it up and do what we want. And some names that you may have heard, Abilene Christians, close. We all have heard of that. Lipscomb University, named and founded by one of the fathers of the Restoration Movement in, in the 1850s in Nashville. Pepperdine University, it's a one you probably have heard of. I didn't even realize it's Church of Christ until I was 30 years old uh, in California. Uh, Rochester College is in Michigan. But these are the bigger Church of Christ schools. And these four don't exclude women from any role when they do their chapel worship. They preach, read scripture, lead prayer, otherwise actively serve in chapel services. And again, I'm not out to go lambast them, but I want to, sh to show you that it's very close. The people that are influencing the majority of the churches of Christ, where a lot of people send their kids, because, oh, it's a church of Christ school, it's got to be good, right? We're opening the door to influence in an incremental way that doesn't lead back to what the Bible says. Very dangerous. Not looking to go change what they do. They can do what they want to do. But what we've got to guard against is making sure it doesn't influence us. Or not just us, but guess what? My little two-year-old grandchild and yours. And guess what? He's hopefully going to have kids someday that it doesn't influence them. And all these things creep in. And all of a sudden, we turn around one day and we're 75, 80 years old past our time of influence. And we go, how did this happen? How did it happen? And many of you know what I'm talking about. That's what we are trying to safeguard against. Even closer to home, Lubbock Christian University, Oklahoma City, or Oklahoma Christian University in Oklahoma City, York College in a small town in Nebraska. They're not quite as, I don't, know if you know, I don't like using the word conservative and liberal, they're not quite as don't use women as much, but again, the idea is that they actively serve in many, many roles as the featured speaker, the preacher, uh, in their context. Here's what's even scarier. These seven colleges are joined by a growing number of churches of Christ, the congregations that have lifted all or most restrictions on women serving. And I'm not picking on women. I'm just showing you again how easy it is, chunk, 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 a little at a time. And it's not the crazy liberals like we like to call them in California doing all this stuff. It's people in Tahoka, Texas, and Lubbock, Texas, and Amarillo, Texas, right down the road that are that close to us. And again, it's not to make them out as bad people, but it's just to show us how important it is. It's not somewhere far away. It's right here that we need to do our job of maintaining what the Bible says. And here's, there's a whole director. I mean, again, you can make a director of anybody, and I'm not poking anybody for being in somebody's directory. Somebody might have us in their directory with wrong stuff. So, but here's what the guidelines for being in this particular directory that had hundreds of churches in it. Are women welcome to use their gifts preaching? Are women welcome to use their gifts doing other public things like leading songs, reading scripture, doing announcements, serving at the communion? Are they able to preach from the pulpit? Are they able to do biblical instruction in other settings? Are they allowed in leadership positions, including eldership? Do they publish a clear statement about this on their website? And I went and looked at all these places I'm going to show you, and there was something along those lines on there. Not everyone was on every place. As I say, close to, close to home. Amarillo, Lubbock, Lubbock. Many of you had connections to Farmer's Branch in, in the Dallas area years ago. Some of them don't even call themselves Churches of Christ anymore. And again, I'm not trying to poke at them or belittle them or any of their ideas that they're, they're um, sincere people. I'm warning us, we need to make sure that we do our job. So as we wrap up today, I want to leave you with hope. We've got a great thing going on here. I want it to continue for my lifetime, for your lifetime, for my kids' lifetimes, for my grandchild's lifetime, for your grandchild's lifetime. 
I want us all to do our part to go back to these biblical principles. Anytime there's a question, every generation that changes, make sure they understand. It's not because it's tradition. It's because it's what the Bible says. It's not something we just thought was a good idea. Somebody that was around here 75 or 100 years ago, it's because we're trying to restore what the Bible says, what the New Testament practiced. Because we want the promises that the Bible gives to us, the good ones. And we expect to get those if we do what the Bible says. Watch for the slow creep of denominationalism from seemingly reputable sources. That's how false teaching gets in and, and gets influence. We just trust whatever people say. We've got to be careful because no matter who says it, whether it's me or another elder or someone else or someone with lots of degrees behind their name or whatever, if it doesn't match what the Bible says, we don't need to be doing it. We don't need to be practicing it. But it's easy to let the thing happen slowly if we're not careful. Help other congregations see the importance of biblical edification in the assembly. When I was a kid, there were a lot of people that thought having one person do all the preaching was going to be the, the, the solution to all their problems because he had a job and he wasn't educated and all these different reasons that one person will elect them because they're a good speaker. And maybe for a few years it helped, but guess what happens when that practice goes on for many years? Pretty soon you have people that are unable people that can't fulfill the godly commandments. And we've seen that happen in some of the smaller congregations around here. And I encourage us, let's help those that don't practice that anymore. And I know many of you are. Let's propagate and teach and model what the biblical way of teaching is. And I think we are, but let's continue to do that. The Bible is perfect. The Bible tells us what we need to know, and if we'll do that, we'll reap the blessings and the benefits of that. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the topic this morning. I hope, again, I'll say it one more time. If you're visiting and this is something different than what you've ever seen or heard of, please talk to me. Please visit because it won't be, there will be no animosity. It won't be a fuss or a fight. Legitimately, with all the sincerity I can say it is, we want to do what the Bible says. We want you to be able to do what the Bible says because that's where our hope's at. If there's anyone here that's been previously taught and would like to be baptized or need the assistance of the church in some way, please come while we stand and sing.